From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone from Long Island, New York and currently residing in Winter Park, Florida. He is the founder of the Evolved Selling Institute and the chief evangelist at Mediafly. Please welcome Tom Pusselo. Hi, Rajiv. I feel like I need to have boxing gloves on and just start kicking. <laughs> well, hey, maybe this conversation will, will uh, involve some of that, with, depending on how much of a debate we get into. We'll see. Exactly. <laughs> uh, like I said, he is Tom Pacello. He is the chief evangelist at Mediafly. And one of my first questions will ultimately be, what does a chief evangelist do? But uh, Mediafly essentially uh, helps companies with their sales enablement strategies through being able to better generate content for their sales and marketing teams, uh, be able to have media on the fly as I'm assuming has how the name was uh, come about. Uh, and the Evolved Selling Institute, Tom has come to be known as the ROI guy. And that's kind of the premise of our conversation today, which is quantifying value when value is hard to quantify. So Tom, can you let our listeners know, why is this idea of value on your mind? Why is it important to you? Absolutely. So nowadays in particular, uh, and throughout B2B decision-making, Value has been important, but certainly when the economy tightens up, whether that had been the bursting of the tech bubble back in 2000, uh, the financial crisis, uh, and certainly through this current uh, health and economic crisis that we're facing, value becomes really important as folks scrutinize the investments that they make, putting much more financial hurdles in place. And as well, uh, the focus becomes on reducing risk and maximizing outcomes from every allocation of resources, whether that be dollars and cents or the precious attention that companies have. So value is very important. And how I define value is what is the outcome that the organization is expecting from any purchase that they make or you as a seller? What is the outcome you would like your customers to achieve? And that outcomes go across a couple of different dimensions. There's a business outcome, an organization outcome, and a personal outcome. And I'm sure we'll talk about all of those uh, as we dive into value and what it means. Yeah. So I think, Tom, you understand the value of a teaser. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, you're so you 
are one of the most interesting people I have ever met, perhaps the most interesting man I've ever met, just given the fact that you have such a dynamic background. And the reason why I said that said coming off of saying the value of a teaser is because you also have a, you have a background in radio. So being in a podcast interview is not a new environment for you. You've been behind a microphone for a long time. Can you let us know, like, how did you get into radio and what was that experience like? Yeah, I do. I've lived many different lives and the, the gray beard, kind of the most interesting man. I wouldn't say that I am that, but uh, I definitely... You know, now that you mention it, you do kind of look like him. I know. I kind of <laughs> play him on TV, but I really have a very short bucket list because I've done so many things and uh, really have tried to be diverse in uh, experiences. So radio, I went to a rather challenged school district in Long Island, Brentwood Central Islip. It is now the home of MS-13, uh, the gang on Long Island. So rough neighborhood, but we had an incredibly large high school and my high school had a radio station. Uh, and I had the opportunity to work with an incredible teacher who's since passed away, Bob Otone. And he was an amazing radio director. And he would give us basically complete responsibility for how do you not only produce shows, but run a radio station. So got my radio license when I was in high school and uh, had several different radio shows. I had a talk news radio show that I hosted. Uh, I don't know what I knew at 16, but it was, I thought it was interesting. Uh, <laughs> a jazz fusion show, so playing Chick Corea and folks like that, Herbie Hancock, a pop and rock show, uh, a comedy show of all things. I don't, I don't see myself wow. as that comedic, but, but it was really just this getting out of my comfort zone and really just launching into how the heck am I going to entertain people for an hour, whether that be through music or uh, through talk and interviews and things like that. And heck if well, now that I'm doing podcasts and hosting the Evolvers podcast series, interviewing sales enablement, thought leaders, analysts in sales and marketing, marketing and sales leaders and executives and chief sales officers, chief revenue officers. Darn it. If that, high school experience doesn't come back in waves to me at times. And really it's, uh, I feel like sometimes I'm back being 16, 17 years old again on Long Island doing some of those interviews when I'm doing it. So it really is a love of mine and it has taken me back. So thank you, Bob. Bob Oton. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that takes you back or it's almost like you feel like you're 16 years old again. I, a couple of years ago, I was cleaning out my bedroom at my parents' house Mm -hmm. And I found my like fifth grade report card <laughs> and fifth grade. You didn't really get grades. It was at least, you know, where we grew up, it was just like, you got like S for satisfactory or it was like a check or a check minus or something like that. And, but there was always this like paragraph of notes that the teacher would write for your quarterly report. And my final quarter, it was also written on uh, the style of paper where it's like, it like creates the carbon copy behind it. Right. So by the time you get the fourth quarter, you can see that what's been written in the previous quarters mm -hmm. as well. And so that was the one that I found. And I saw this progression of these paragraphs of like assessments from the teacher where it was like quarter one was like, oh, Rajiv has like, you know, he's a joy to have in class. He always has a quick witty comment for us to laugh about. You know, he's really social. And then like quarter two, it was like, he's getting very social <laughs> and he's talking a lot. And then like by the end, by the fourth quarter, 
it was like his sociability is really getting out of control. He talks too much. And I, and if he keeps this up, he won't survive middle school. <laughs> and like, I, I remember reading that laughing. Cause I was like, I'm doing this while also planning to host a podcast episode in like, tw- like 20 minutes from now. <laughs> and I was like, what a dynamic there that I was told I talk too much. And it'll be like the death of me. And then I ended up making talking essentially See, my exactly. profession. Talking as a career. It's great. When you were doing the high school gig, did you have any across your shows? Was there any like signature line that you would give your listening audience? I wasn't that smart. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Media was a little bit different back then. It really was just conversations with friends that we had. Mm. So a lot of ways, it's not too different than today. But you didn't have to brand yourself as much, or at least it didn't seem like it. Now you've got to have a tagline. You've got to have those common things that you say kind of that. That is, I think we're a little bit more aware of the personal brand. Uh, yeah. Back then it was really just how the heck am I going to fill this hour that Bob's slotting <laughs> me more? <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, so I did radio in college. I think I told you last time that we talked. My roommate and I had a sports talk show that like the first year we did it, it was three hours. I don't know how we filled three hours. And then the second year it was two hours. And then by the last year, we were like, I I think we can only do an hour long show at this point. We also would do the announcing for the college basketball games at DePaul. And when I was doing play by play, my catchphrase for a three pointer was either, I don't know why I came up with this, but it was like a pop can (laughs) or it was laces in their faces. (laughs) Good deal. So yeah, I think I was part of that era of, okay, you got to have like the catchphrase yeah, or some, something that's going to like stand out to people. Because exactly. I know at that time anyway, Gus Johnson was coming into prominence and his whole thing was like onions or, or whatever he said. Yeah. Uh, so you're okay. Radio is one interesting aspect of your background. Another interesting aspect, well, you and I just have so many parallels. Uh, you also have a background as a musician being part of a wedding band. Yep. Uh, when did you start? playing an instrument? What do you play? And what was that experience like? That too was back in Long Island. And then I took that down to Florida as well. But kind of at 12 or 13, I started to teach myself uh, piano and keyboard. Had a really boring organ teacher. We had like an old Hammond organ in the house. And um, but I got into uh, I got a hold of a Lennon and McCartney playbook. And I just started teaching myself Lennon and McCartney songs and what better stuff to learn when you're that age. And I wanted to be John Lennon. I literally would walk around with little glasses and (laughs) an army jacket because there was this one picture, even though he was peace, love and happiness. He had this one army jacket, I think a movie he played. And I just loved the way it looked. And my uncle had one from the 101 Airborne when he was a vet. And I would wear that army jacket around school and and people would... uh, liken me to uh, to Lennon and there was another kid in uh, school, George, who was McCartney and we'd sit and write songs. And then uh, from the high school band, I met uh, my future wife, uh, Suzette, and we formed a, as friends, kind of formed this wedding band uh, called Electra, of all things. And we literally had blue tuxedos with ruffles and bow ties and we're this quintessential playing the part yeah (laughs) and so we would play showcases and and all these gigs across long island and i some weekends would be two or three weddings in a weekend you know in a time making 200 300 bucks a gig which isn't chump change when you're that age at 16 you know this is back in yeah the 80s 
uh, early 80s, uh, late 70, early 80s. And yeah, we cranked it. All the prime rib we could eat, all the booze we can drink. Uh, we weren't, <laughs> but I had the, a beard similar to this when I was that age. So everyone wow. was 30 years old and shoot, making 200 bucks a gig on the weekends. So. <laughs> yeah, I did some DJing in high school with a buddy. And I mean, we were doing like all the sweet 16 parties. Mm-hmm. And when you get like 16 years old, you get like $200. Like you've never seen that much money in your life. And like yeah. it takes so long to spend that $200 at 16 years old. And you're just like, oh, this is amazing. And we didn't have to do that much. <laughs> okay. Third most interesting man thing of your oh, background is you've been like a, what would you call it? Like an exotic car, like racing instructor, right? Yeah, actually, uh, for those who are looking at the video or if there's video, I've got posters behind me of um, uh, Porsche race cars. Oh, that's what that is. I thought it was, yeah. a, dart, or I thought it was a, a dartboard graphic. No, yeah, you're right. No, it's uh, it's uh, the, um, all the different liveries that raced uh, in what's called Porsche Cup. And I actually owned that car right there. Very cool. 17. And I did not race ahead of Formula One races. That was deserved for the professionals. In fact, Roland Ash, a very famous driver, uh, drove that car. But uh, I did have the opportunity to own that and a couple of other race cars um, and do high performance driving instructing was one of my favorites. So you basically are working with Porsche Club or BMW Club or other car clubs and getting folks out in their street cars to learn how to drive fast and safely on the racetrack. And I would love, you know, getting out with people's cars and just teach them how to drive well. Many people think they can immediately go from the street to the track and drive really fast and immediately get in over their heads. We call it red mist. And uh, they'd immediately start spinning or doing other things. And uh, so I would teach these relaxation techniques and, and some Zen Buddhist techniques so that they could relax on the track and get faster and faster and do it safely. So yeah, it's a a passion of mine. I did some endurance racing in just amateur SCCA historic racing. So uh, another aspect of my my life. But where did that like love for racing even begin? Yeah, when I graduated college, I had a friend, Bill Sino, who had this 79 Porsche Turbo and it was just the most exotic, insane car ever. Uh, he'd stamp on the gas and the boost would kick in and immediately you'd just get this blast of G-force back and the car would rock it. And he was insane with that car. So he got me into loving German cars. I had grown up on Long Island and been typical kind of Mustang, muscle car kind of uh, background. And he got me to, to love German cars. And uh, Bill now has a car collection that is unbelievable. Uh, Ferrari Enzo that Nicholas Cage owned, an F50, an F40, uh, a 918 Spider. So Bill has kept his love for cars as well, and he's got this incredible car collection. But he got me into the German cars. And then I had this opportunity with uh, when I sold the company to Gartner Group, uh, Bill Kerwin, the father of TCO, uh, took me out to Lime Rock one day. And he said, here, here's the keys to my car. We're going to do this performance driving school. And uh, here, take the keys to my car and you can drive it as fast as you want on the track. And he had this Denon uh, modified 540 that was incredible. And I couldn't believe he was giving me the keys to his car. And sure enough, at the end of the, the event, I was driving like a bat out of hell, faster than Bill was at that time. And I was just <laughs> hooked. 
And it just, honestly, it just escalated from there. Every year it would be a faster car, uh, eventually went into full-on race cars. And then along came my two teenage daughters and decided that, you know, and there were enough accidents that had happened and, and in fact, a couple of tragic ones where I was like, ah, let me put it to rest for a while. I've been there, done that took it kind of as far as my uh, meager capability could take it. But one of these days in retirement, once I get my last one out of college, I'm going to get back to teaching again, which I absolutely love, particularly taking uh, women out on the track who haven't, who may not have that confidence, yet they're most of the time better than the men that get out on the track. That's one thing in particular. I love teaching, teaching guys that are in over their head who think they're fast all that in a bag of chips and getting them to slow down and do it right. And then women who might've been intimidated or very timid on the track and getting them to be confident. I just love doing that. Now, I don't necessarily believe that humans are a collection of random behaviors and events. And now while it's surface level, racing, radio, and playing in a band, playing piano, keyboard, may all seem like wildly disparate activities I'm curious to know, what do you see as the common thread behind all those things? Yeah, for me, all three of them, it's a really interesting question. All three of them are an escape. They are turn off the noise and 100% focus. 100% focus on that interview or what you're doing on the air. 100% focus on the music and uh, your bandmates and creating something incredible in the time. And car racing, many people see or high-performance driving see as this aggressive kind of thing. It's actually the opposite. It's very quiet, calming, and the best race drivers are usually not the most aggressive. They're these calm personalities. Now, I'm not exactly a calm personality, so I need these escapes to get there. But there are three ways that I use to kind of escape from this world and kind of get into another world where the noise is shut out and I'm just there doing my thing passionately. Well, that's interesting that you say that. It's all versions of an escape because I have to imagine that is in a way, if not how you view selling, perhaps it's what you believe like good salespeople should do is be able to allow their buyer to kind of like escape from the noise, quote unquote, Mm-hmm. and really focus in on something that's right in front of them. Is that a fair connection to make? If you're a good seller, you're definitely able to capture their attention enough to do that. Uh, it's incredibly hard nowadays. People have the attention span of goldfish. Uh, but I do view selling as putting on a show and putting on a performance. Um, yeah. And it's a collaborative performance. So it's almost like you know orchestrating or collaborating, co-creating with your customer in the moment. So absolutely, I view it as uh, you've got one hour that this customer and group of folks have taken time out of their busy days to meet with you. And how are you going to make that time as valuable as possible? And how are you going to create beautiful music together? So I do view it that way. Viewing it as a performance. You're a man after my own heart with language like that. So let's talk about this idea now of the sales environment and being able to, you know, our topic of quantifying value and value is hard to quantify. Now you already defined, you know, gave, gave us your definition of value at the beginning of this episode. Going off of that, 
let's start here. I don't think it's necessarily new information for a lot of people to be told like, you need to deliver value, you need to deliver value, you need to deliver value, right? And I don't think that's novel. A lot of people have heard that. Why then do so many people continue to not deliver value <laughs> in their buyer interactions? So I've been doing value for, gosh, almost 25 years now. And I got into it because I was a product manager and I had a new enterprise sales team, a new product I was launching, and I needed to make that product easy to sell, easy to articulate the value, easy so that my sellers had a formula and a way to engage that was rooted in outcomes that they would face. And invariably, the approach that many take is we teach our sellers all about the solution. So they in and out, they know everything about the product, everything about the company. And what I did was I flipped that around and said, okay, you need to know about the product. But if we start with the pain that the buyer is experiencing, and I get you to focus on that first, the product is an end to a means and you have to get to that eventually. But we're just starting out. So we've got to just get in the door. And how do we illuminate that pain? So I designed this tool that would analyze storage in a network and completely codify that storage and let you know exactly how much it was costing you. And from that pain is how we sold. I think that when it comes to value, where folks get wrong, what they don't get right or complete nowadays is they walk in and think that the buyer wants their solution and needs their solution. And at the end of the day, their solution is just another project that they might have to take on. Uh, one that's going to require resources, dollars, and time, and one that could be risky for them. And so to them, it's not anything that they may need or want. It's just going to be another project. So if you walk in with that attitude, then immediately you've got to prove to them that there's a pain that's really worth addressing so that they could take this project on. And instead, we walk in proudly with our solution, our company, and we often lead with that. And that's where I think the issue and the disconnect occur. I call it the engagement gap where you're walking talking product solution features, price, um, thinking that the buyer already has the need fully prioritized Meanwhile, you've got to take a step back and realize that they might be exploring this, but they're not fully committed to it. And you really have to work on the commitment first and then ultimately get around to the solution and the differentiator second. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I think there's almost an overemphasis on understanding the product when really the product is just secondary to whatever the, the pain point is. And it makes me think, you know, I think, I think one of the most valued roles in a fast growing organization is the product marketer. And I often wonder, is that even titled the wrong thing? And should it be a problem marketer instead of a product marketer? What's your thought on that? I, I love that. And I think that would really correct a lot of things because product marketers are responsible mostly for putting together product data sheets, product presentations, product demonstrations, and are, if they're doing it right, they're also focusing on the the problems and the challenges that the buyers have. But I think just changing that name could be uh, a great way to get the focus on what really counts, which yeah. is connecting with the buyer around the challenges they have and making sure those challenges are fully prioritized. We buy from pain 
we don't typically buy from gain. And that's been proven in behavioral decision-making study after study. So this idea of value, last year on this show, I had as a guest, David Premer, who I understand you've also talked to as well on your podcast. And in that conversation, we had a really good discussion and the topic was the paradox of ROI selling. Mm -hmm. You're known as the ROI guy. Do you believe value and ROI are the same thing? Why or why not? Yeah, so David and I had a a great conversation about this, Rajiv, and it was very constructive because I think we're totally on the same page. He uses hyperbole a little bit to say, you know, ROI is dead, ROI doesn't work, and he's right in one way in that return on investment is a small portion of what value selling is all about. Return on investment is, at the end of the day, kind of the equation of what returns are you getting from the investment outlay that you have. And if you expand it a little bit to be like discounted cash flow analysis or the financial analysis of the solution that's going to get implemented, that's the logical reason of why you may want to implement the solution. There are two other really important aspects to purchase decision making, both of which are more important than the ROI, the financial justification, and the logic. And that is emotion and trust. And if we go back to the teachings of Aristotle, he actually would use this, this triune way of kind of selling to win arguments in front of the Senate in, uh, in Greece. So we have logos, which is the logic, but we also have pathos, which is the emotion, and ethos, which is trust. Emotion is, do you have a pain and is it scary enough and important enough to deal with? And we spoke about the importance of that already. So you've got to connect with your buyers around the pain and make sure that emotionally they're ready to change. And that is as important in the value selling equation as anything. And in fact, some would say it's anywhere between 50 and 80% of decisions in B2B are made based on emotion, not based on the logic of having a good return on investment and a good business case. And then we have trust, which is also really important. And uh, you've got to make sure that if you are saying that you're going to be able to deliver something that the buyer believes that that's going to be delivered. So trust is a way that they mitigate risks around the decision and they ultimately have to have that good gut feeling, which connects up to the middle part of the brain, which is where trust is uh, engendered in a simple model of the brain. And, you know, you've got to make sure that you're connecting with them around being a trustworthy provider, being a trustworthy solution, and that they trust that they can get the outcomes that you're delivering. So um, David's completely right in that ROI is but a third at most of the uh, decision-making process that emotion and trust play an equal role, if not dominant role in the decision. I was batting around this concept recently with an advisor of mine, and I don't know if it has any merit, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Instead of ROI, I meaning investment, should we be perhaps thinking of it as ROE, return on emotion? You could, but I think that you just put ROI where it belongs in that logic part. To me, the emotion could sometimes be separated out. I I like to view them as kind of three buy buttons in the brain. You've got emotion, which is kind of your reptilian brain that you've got to stimulate to get attention first. And then 
pain and elevate fear, uncertainty, doubt second. And then that's the motivation for change. Then once you've got them motivated, you've got to present the logic for why the change is good so that they can rationalize it in their brain with the neocortex. And then ultimately, you've got that middle part of the brain, which is, okay, at the end of the day, they've got to have a good gut feeling about this decision, the limbic system. And uh, you've got to make sure that um, they're going to trust that the decision is done right. So I think, uh, you know, kind of thinking of it as a, a three parts to the puzzle and the solution of getting a buyer convinced that they want to change, uh, that uh, pathos, logos, ethos, and in that order, by the way, is kind of what you need to trigger to get the change to occur and get from no decision, do nothing, stick with the status quo to yes. Just so everyone's listening, because it's important and I want to make sure it doesn't get glossed over. Can you just quickly go through again? And this is all stuff we learned in school, but then forgot, right? Pathos equals this, logos equals this, ethos equals this. Yeah. So uh, pathos is emotion. Uh, It's the emotional part of the decision. Logos is logic, the logical part, the ROI of the decision. And then ethos is trust making sure that you've got that trust connection with the buyer and they've got a good gut feeling about the decision. So what you're saying is it has to start with pathos. It has to start with emotion. It usually does. Yeah. Trust is interspersed throughout, but the order that I think you need to think about when you engage with a buyer, how are you going to get them to change? I think that you've got to upset their worldview in a way. You've got to get them to self-realize that where they're at is untenable before you can ever affect change. Think about it in your own life. You know, when you had a really important decision to make or if you've ever had a friend or a family member uh, have an addiction, right? This is the best way to think about it. They kind of have to get to rock bottom and they have to realize themselves that they have to change. That's part of what triggering pathos is all about getting emotionally connected with the buyer and upsetting their, uh, getting them to self-realize that their current worldview um, needs to change in order to uh, improve is ultimately what that pathos is all about. And so that's, that has to come first before they'll ever logically think that they're going to get an ROI from the solution and that they believe that can actually occur. And before trust even enters into the equation is you need to get them to self-realize. And there's a way to do that using another Greek, uh, Socrates and Socratic questioning, which you use in therapy a lot of times, but get them to self-realize that they need to change. Once they know that a change is in the wind, Then you present your solution and the logic behind the solution. And then you point to here's why you can trust me and the solution that it can actually deliver. Right. Now, let me play the role of the pushback person because I'll tell you things I have heard before because I very much agree with you. I may have not used the same terminology or the same, uh, you know, sort of reference points, but I very much agree and share the similar viewpoints as you. I have heard, yeah, but no, but I mean, we have sophisticated enterprise buyers. They just want to know what the ROI is going to be. They just want to know that it's going to make them money. They just want to know it's going to save them time. That wouldn't work for us. What do you say to that person? Yeah, I think that there are definitely a class of buyers that try to take emotion out of the equation. And the organization is sometimes set up 
in a way to do that. So you'll have a COVID committee, uh, as I'm calling it in many organizations that's been established recently, and it's just a, a impartial buying committee that reviews every purchase that comes across the table. And they try to look at things without any emotion involved at all. Uh, CFOs sometimes try to take that emotional, emotionless approach with you. Um, but usually to get to the point where they even want to consider change, they've had to have some kind of awakening about their current situation that makes it untenable. Uh, is the vendor that they're getting the solution from today going out of business? Are their processes broke? Did they have a failure that looked like it could have cost that person their job? There's going to be something involved that was the catalyst for change. And your job as a seller is to make sure that that catalyst for change is overwhelming. It may just be spur of the moment kind of thing or incidental, but you really have to find out what was the catalyst for them even calling you up and then really seek to understand, perhaps expand and amplify that before you go and jump to the solution and trying to convince them that you're the right person to deliver. Yeah, so you know, I always answer the question enough. For it you. does. And, and I think organizations are designed to try to take that emotion out of it. But I can tell you right now that if you've ever bought something individually within an organization and you're the champion of the mobilizer of that, that you usually have some kind of emotional connection to the pain that's involved that you want to solve it. And you also need to gain a lot of trust in the provider to then champion them up to the CFO or that decision-making committee. Yeah. And I think that kind of speaks overall to the, the need to be able to almost like coordinate the buying process on their side and not just yeah. hope something will get surprised thrown on a CFO's desk and they'll be like, yeah, sure. I want to spend $40,000. I want to spend $80,000. <laughs> now, Rajiv, that being said, many organizations, you know, they'll leverage something like the challenger sale, real popular methodology that a lot of companies have implemented to kind of make that emotional connection. They'll work on their trust and their reviews and everything else. Why ROI is so important nowadays is many companies don't do a good job on the quantified part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So they've worked on the emotional connection using Challenger. They've worked on trust with making sure they've got, you know, their position in the, the Forrester Wave or the Gartner Magic Quadrant. They've got scores on G2 Crowd. Uh, and they've worked on elevating the trust factor. And they're good at talking about their company, elevating the case studies, all that stuff. And then it comes to ROI. And lo and behold, the seller is talking the words of value, but not really uh, quantifying that value in a way that is believable and trustworthy to the organization they're selling to. Yeah, so let's, let's unpack that a little bit more. I think this idea of value and ROI is really easy to point to in some organizations. It's a lot harder based on what you're selling. So if, for example, a company is selling lead generation, mm -hmm. right? Lead generation services, let's say. It's easy to say, okay, well, the ROI here is we get you 20, you know, uh, we'll get you 20 leads per month or, or 20 meetings per month, mm -hmm. you know, with a conversion rate of X, right? Yeah. That's very easy to like point to the numbers. Conversely, there are companies, and this, you know, kind of speaks to the larger topic today, like when it's hard, where it's hard to quantify, right? Where you're selling more of an intangible. So one example I'll give you is, 
my first company, Idea Lemon, we were selling personal brand um, like coaching, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? We did it through a B2C product, selling a digital course. We wanted to take it to corporations because we had done a couple like one-off workshops. People wanted like a team building thing. And we had this really cool process to figure out your personal why and then speak to like, why should you build your own brand around that, right? And we wanted to take this, like we should be like, oh, we should start prospecting businesses to bring this as like a, this whole personal brand model to their employees. And I would attribute a lot of it to we were just too young and stupid at the time, but like we never really pursued it because we couldn't like figure out, well, what's going to make them buy this? Like team building is like really a nice to have and all that stuff. Like could it help the sales team sells better? Cool. But like what, what can we point to to say, hey, it's going to help them in this way. So when it's an intangible like that, how do you start to quantify value? How do you even talk about value? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. First, there are some solutions and there are some aspects of solutions that are hard to quantify and in some cases impossible. You talk about is personal brand is a lot like sometimes trying to quantify the value of social media efforts or public relations, right? Sometimes they're really hard. So what you start to do is you start to quantify it it one of two ways. You either try to get very tangible with it, which is, okay, if we build up personal brand, how many referrals can we get from those employees that then become part of our pipeline and our opportunity. And then you're going through typical funnel math using serious decisions, Forrester metrics on MQLs, LQ, MQ, SQLs, average sale price to ultimately come up with some dollar figure. But the problem is that personal brand building is over here and that referral and then ultimately the funnel is way over here. And there's second, third order, fourth order effects that have to occur to even get anything from a personal brand general improvement here over into that funnel. Uh, Then you start to think of other things like, well, maybe we can measure it based on net promoter score or customer lifetime value and loyalty or even brand scoring. And there are some figures that say, well, an improvement in net promoter score or improvement in brand, every 1% improvement could lead to X amount of dollars of revenue for the company or growth for the company. But there again, I mean, those things are very soft quantifications. We call that indirect because again, there's several orders of effect that have to occur from personal brand and improving that through a course to ultimately it translating to a business impact. So in a lot I also, of ways, I also think it's easy to refute that data too. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Because there are all these these kind of effects that layers, have to occur, yeah. layers of effect that at any point in time you can have a drop off. So even if it is a million dollar value and you take into account what we normally do with indirects in a quantified model is you discount them. You count 10 cents on the dollar, you count five cents on the dollar because you can't count on them because they are refutable and you do have to discount them substantially. Um, So rightfully so, your connection to tangible impact, business value impact was pretty light. But I think the way that you need to think about value within an organization is, and I mentioned this in the beginning, there's three kind of dimensions. There's business, there's kind of functional, 
and there's personal value that can be delivered. So business value is what we're talking about when it comes to the kind of the quantification of top line or bottom line impact. How can you help the company reduce or avoid cost? How can you help them to improve their productivity and process? How do you help them to reduce or eliminate risk? And then how do you help them to grow revenue or capture opportunities? And so those are the four dimensions that we call the value map, and that's business value. There's two other forms of value that you do need to look at. And sometimes these can be compelling and you need to make sure as a good seller, you don't just focus on business value, but you focus on these other two aspects. And that's kind of functional value or organizational value where how when the solution is implemented, could it help my users have more capabilities or improve customer experience? Hard to quantify those but those could be equally important. So that's one aspect. And then the personal value aspect is, how can you help to maybe help the person that you're selling this to get a raise or a promotion, obtain some internal recognition, maybe not lose their job or you know, not stall their career or maybe get some industry or external recognition. So when you're communicating and quantifying value to the company, not only do we need to think about the emotion, pathos, logic, logos, trust, ethos, we also have to think of the three dimensions of value. And that is business, right? And that's the more quantifiable piece. Less quantifiable is the organizational or functional impact on users and customers. And then finally, there's the personal impact that you're going to have on that champion or that key stakeholder within the organization to get them the recognition that they deserve, or maybe help them to improve their work-life balance, um, get a promotion or a raise, and so forth. So to me then, that kind of highlights the importance of being able to storytell. Yeah, And I think regardless, it's important, but probably especially so when there's not the obvious translation of dollars to reduced cost or improved efficiency, whatever that might be. How do you like to approach storytelling and how do you like to convey value through story? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've seen is, you know, I started out in as the ROI guy really focused on the quantification of value. And it took a while to get those models fully built out and understood and, and leveraged. I worked with Gartner on their total cost of ownership models back in the day and pioneering those. So we spent a lot of time on the quantification of the value, that piece. But you're right, there needs to be a story around the value. The numbers are not the story, right? A 600% ROI doesn't mean a darn thing to the organization. You've got to tie it to their priorities and you've got to tell a story around it. So what we came up with was a way to do value storytelling that incorporated the quantification, the logos part, but also included the emotion and the trust, the pathos and the ethos along with the logos. And we call it close. And it's a way that you shape your story using Freytag's triangle in the time-honored way that the best stories in the world are told and the simplest stories. Uh, fairy tales are built this way, uh, like Beauty and the Beast. There's the, the prince who was cast a spell because he didn't let the witch in from the rain, and he's turned into a beast. And then we're revealed to Belle and uh, Gaston, who's kind of pursuing her. So there's these reveals in the beginning of the story, and then they ultimately build up to 
a climax. So you don't just jump right to the solution. There's a way to unfold the story the way a good tale is told, like Beauty and the Beast. So how do you do that? Well, you start with the challenge, right? What is the buyer pained with? And you hopefully are helping to reveal some of those pains. Then what's the loss? So challenge is the first, that's C. Then loss, second, L. What is the loss that they're experiencing? How extreme is this by them not solving it every day? What's the cost of do nothing? Then what's the opportunity? Is there a glimmer of hope? Can we paint a picture of the future? And that's O. Then what is the solution and the value that the solution can deliver? That's S. And then ultimately, the E is evidence, and that's all close. So C-L-O-S-E for close, and that's the storytelling method that we like folks to use to communicate and quantify value. Why in that order? Well, the challenge and the loss trigger the emotion. The opportunity and the solution tie to the logic. And then the evidence, the E, the case studies that back up that others just like you have lived happily ever after, that triggers on ethos and trust. And so it follows Freytag's triangle in terms of how a story has a reveal, has um, building tension, has a climax, has a happily ever after. And it follows the hitting the three buy buttons in the brain of emotion, logic, and trust, all following this shape, C-L-O-S-E, challenge, loss, opportunity, solution, and evidence. A couple quick follow-ups to that, that reveal in the beginning. Mm -hmm. What might that sound, you could take any hypothetical like business example, what might a reveal sound like? Yeah, so a good one. In the uh, stock market, in your portfolio, there's a lot of uncertainty today. There's a lot of volatility. Shoot, we hit a period where the crisis hit and the market crashed. And then, you know, several months later, it's back up through the roof. There's a lot of volatility there. And the typical portfolio of 60-40 stocks to bonds doesn't shelter you from that. When that crash occurred, bonds followed stocks all the way down and they followed them all the way back up. So it's very difficult for you as an individual investor to hedge that. So that's kind of the reveal of like, mm. a, it's kind of connecting with a known problem that someone has and kind of clarifying it for them and putting words to it and maybe amplifying it a little bit. Then what we do is we say, uh, did you know that most of the wealth and growth and hedges that uh, institutions are taking advantage of that you can't as an individual, that's occurring in the private markets. And that endowments and public pensions have, uh, for example, anywhere between 20 to 30% of their portfolio, not in stocks and bonds, but in private equity. So how can you as an individual kind of leverage what institutions are doing to remove that volatility while still maintaining returns and do it. So it's kind of this reveal of a, you kind of knew this problem existed, but I need to connect with you on it. And then I need to yeah. amplify it. And then I need to kind of paint a vision for like what it's costing you by not taking advantage of it. And then kind of showing you that here, here's maybe a better way to deal with it without hitting you over the head and saying, Oh, here's this company. And we have this much money under management and this and that. And Oh, we have this product. That's a yeah. private market product. And, we can sell it. And so that's just one business example. But what you want to do in the beginning is you kind of want to teach and 
co-discover or teach and assess and diagnose the challenges that the buyer has. Don't jump to the solution or take their word for that they've diagnosed their problem completely. They might not know all of the use cases and things that they need to focus on. So any good seller will certainly answer the buyer's immediate questions, but seek to do a level of diagnosis, almost like a good doctor, where you go in and the initial discussion is, well, doc, I've had this odd pain in my shoulder and it's really been, been bothering me a lot. Well, they don't immediately stick a needle in there right. you yeah. know, <laughs> with steroids to go and loosen it up. They're yeah. going to do some diagnostic, right? They don't immediately jump to probably the most common solution that you'd have for that. They might run some diagnostic tests. They might mm. <clears throat> now here's the challenge that sellers often push back with. They said, well, you go into a doctor because you trust that doctor. You don't go to a salesperson to get diagnosed. You go to a salesperson because you already think you know what you want and you're wanting them to kind of help you to facilitate that purchase, right? But a good seller will act like a good doctor and begin to earn trust, begin to ask the right questions, begin to maybe teach them a little bit. Well, there's a lot of people that visit me that have a shoulder pain and they'll often ask for a shot when really it's going to be something either a lot more serious or maybe not serious at all. So there's ways to kind of get it to where you're opening up the stage for a collaborative discussion and discovery process that any good seller will need to kind of add to their portfolio of techniques. The other thing I wanted to mention here in that close methodology, challenge, loss, opportunity, solution, and evidence Mm-hmm. is that evidence is the last thing in that. And how often do we hear a salesperson lead with evidence? They will literally be like, oh, so-and-so had, they saved 20% in the first two months. And it's, you know, it almost becomes this like, uh, I don't know how to, how even know how to phrase it, but it almost becomes this like competition of like, oh, I can do it better, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Almost like two like brothers being like, oh, you can jump that far. I can jump this far. Yeah. Or worse, like I'll go back to that financial example I just mentioned. And financial company after financial company will go out and they'll be, they'll immediately talk about how big the company is, how many people are in it, how much money is under management. Here's pictures of all the handsome and beautiful founders and so forth. And it's, it's ridiculous because you're selling and you're trying to convince them that you're trustworthy when you really need to build trust based on knowledge, not on a bunch of tombstones of who your customers are or how big you are or how fast you're growing. And I see that mistake made over and over again in seller presentations. They start with who they are and what the company is all about instead of starting with a, hey, you know, here's some research we've done on other consumer product good companies like yours. And here are the three things that we see these companies struggling with, and here's some benchmarks and insights that we have about how they're struggling. Are you struggling with those same things? Oh, no, you are, or, oh, you're not? Well, what are you struggling with? And then having a dialogue with them about that. So definitely, and a lot of this is illuminated. Challenger did a great job, corporate executive board, now part of Gartner. They've done an amazing job of kind of getting people educated that, you know, walk in, have insights, engage around the buyer challenges and then that then becomes a common pain point that everyone can move from 
in a priority fashion to seek out a solution. And that's what everything ultimately needs to tie back to. So the other key that a seller needs to do is in successive meetings, revisit those challenges and make sure that as new people are added, everyone is on board with these are the priorities that we're addressing. Uh, And then here's the use cases to solve those. And here's the pieces of the solution. And here's the value. Everything ultimately ties back to that. So if you don't do that good diagnostic in the beginning, and you don't do that good kind of rubric of here are the challenges, the proposal can fall apart later or not get approved. And then you sit there wondering why the buyer chose to stick with do nothing and pass on your proposal. It's often because you didn't tie back to the right priorities. You didn't have consensus on those challenges and you didn't make them painful enough so that they had to implement your solution. A couple anecdotes I'll share on that. First, you know, that notion of going in and talking about, oh, here's our company, here's the great things we do, here's our product. My work is around narrative development for companies. And the linchpin of that is what's the pitch deck? And nearly every time when I, you know, I come up with a first draft, the first pushback is, why does it take so long to get to our product? Because <laughs> for me, the first 50% of the presentation is not ever mentioning the brand or the product. It's all about this build up in the way that you're talking about. And without fail, every time there is this like, oh my God, like we're not talking about ourselves enough. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's the point. Yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to talk about yourself. It's so all much. about your customer. So we had a company that was a financial services company, PFM, uh, Steve Alexander. Uh, and he saw what uh, a presentation I had given. It was like, I was talking to him about his presentation. So he's like, all right, Tom, come on in. Let's flip this around. Let's make it all about the buyer challenges. And they would respond to RFPs with big governments and then be asked to come in and present. And every company, there'd be six companies in one day visiting with this in a big conversation, you know, little table, or there would be a podium where all of the folks would be on evaluating the solution. They'd all stand up there. They'd all have a presentation that looked and sounded and felt the same. I mean, you could take out one company's logo. Oh, put I, can, I can imagine this. Yeah. The pictures <laughs> out Cause every yeah. financial management company is basically doing the same thing. They all have different levels of experience, different levels of performance, but those are details. And if they walk in talking about themselves, then the next company walks in talking about themselves. The next company walks in talking about themselves. By the time you're done with the sixth, they all sound and feel and act the same way. Then it's eeny, meeny, miny, moe to pick them. So those are pretty low odds. So what we did was we flipped it around. And they would immediately start with something different, which is when we help a state or local government manage their money, here are the four, five top things that the folks we're meeting with are struggling with. Free cash flow management, reduced risk. And so immediately it felt and looked and acted completely differently and they stood out from the rest. For an entire year, Rajiv, they did not lose an RFP. I can imagine what that's like. And for another day, I have a similar story of a massive RFP at a company I used to work at where it was like, it would have been like a $10 million plus annual deal. Mm -hmm. And we just totally shat the bed because, you know, we made it into like the final three or four. Yeah, and it was a major entertainment brand, and there where our team is sitting across the table from the executive producer of like the one of the most popular television shows in television history. Uh, like that person's name is like first on the credits when the show mm-hmm. ends, like that big of a deal. And we did that presentation where we opened with, um, 
what was it like? Oh, here's, here's all our client logo. You know, we had the NASCAR slide and then we went into like, here's our company headquarters with offices in these locations. And then, Oh, here's our great products and all this stuff. And here's our executive leadership with a combined 400 years of experience. Right. And we just got like destroyed like that. I've never gotten feedback that made you want to just like cower in the corner and cry more than than that day. (laughs) But I think that the best learnings occur from some of those painful lessons, right? Uh, I, did that get you on this road? To yes. Like- yes. That, yeah. So I detail that story in a webinar that I do called sales presentations that don't suck. And yeah. what I say in that webinar is that point forward, I was like, this can't happen again. And it just set me on this path to like study all this stuff more and figure out what's a better way to connect with people. And yeah. I'll tell you, you like, very similar to today, me today. Yeah. yeah. I present right? these great ROIs, these compelling ROIs with tons of diligence and great evidence. And, and um, they weren't enacting change until I combined it with good storytelling. So mm-hmm. for me, it was a similar lesson where it's like, you do all this work, you create a great ROI, 600% ROI, and then why aren't they moving? Why aren't they doing this? Doesn't yeah. you know what's here? Well, you haven't connected with them emotionally, have you? And yeah. do they really trust the 600% or not? And so that's what kind of got me on that same route was there was a, a big deal we worked on for a company. It was at Microsoft and we created a great business case for this client and, and they didn't act on it. And then we wondered why. Well, we weren't tied to a big enough priority for the company. It was really the main reason. And so I'm like, all right, we got to make sure we're tying to priority challenges. And so that was the whole kind of foundation for moving into the storytelling realm for myself. Yeah. And I'll tell you now, like for any large deal that I do, the proposal will be a presentation. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have zero use for something like PandaDoc because the entire proposal, the presentation that follows this you know, same model we've been talking about. One of the ones I did last year, which was successful, it was this whole story arc. And granted, at that point in the process, I had gotten to know them really well. So I knew I could tailor it very specifically to them and their personalities. And I built this whole story arc around hip hop and how I could connect their brand to what it's like to become a mainstream rapper. Oh, sweet. Right. And and they were like, yeah, that's what we want. Like we want to be Jay-Z. We don't want to be the underground rapper who people like, who like dies in martyrdom. We want to be the one who like leads the industry and become again in that presentation. Guess like, I don't know, let's say it was 25 slides. It wasn't until slide 18, I think that you even start to talk about the actual like scope of work. Yeah. Right. Everything until then is just this buildup. Yeah. But they're sold. You know, exactly. Exactly. The rest is just details to be worked out. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure you've found in your experience too, when you effectively storytell like that. So, so here's what typically happens in a sales cycle. The longer the sales cycle goes, the smaller the deal size because the seller starts to concede things because they mm-hmm. start to worry. But I think when you adopt this framework you're talking about, you start to value, really embody value, you storytell better you actually begin to increase scope as the timeline like continues. Mm-hmm. And then especially if you do that kind of like story driven proposal, then those things that like, maybe they were like ancillary before it's like, well, no, but that's part of like this, this ascension that we're talking about here. You can't mm-hmm. not do those things too. Yeah, totally agree with that. 
Definitely so. And we've moved that same way to where not only are we doing presentation-based proposals, but we've made them interactive so that they've got this sizzle and dazzle with them along with the storytelling because, again, you got short attention spans nowadays. And I think that's what Mediafly is really good at is taking this idea of static content and really making it something, particularly in a virtual environment, making it something that does not throw into a background tab while they're physically on the call, but not paying attention. It it keeps keeps you as a foreground tab. There's something happening visually all the time. And then the other aspect of interactivity is you can jump to what's of most interest to you. Because what we find too in these proposals is that different stakeholders will have different interests. And if you just try to linearly bring everyone through one story arc, that story arc might not be optimized for them. So it even gets more complex. It's like, not only do we have one major story arc of it all, but you've got these kind of sub story arcs that you can take. Yeah, it's like you need to account for Hansel going this journey. way while Gretel goes this way. Yeah, the create your own <laughs> journey kind of storybooks are, Very cool. are Very back. Cool. <laughs> Let's begin our wrap up here. Where can our listeners uh, find you? Where can they learn more about Evolve Selling and Mediafly? Yeah, absolutely. So my thought leadership and community site is the best spot and that is evolvedselling.com. And there you'll find podcasts, my book, articles that I write. I usually write an article a week, uh, just great interviews, great content, tools, resource lists. So evolvedselling.com is the main way to find me. And who is someone, you only get one person. So who's one person that you want to shout out? And that could be like a colleague, a mentor, an advisor, a friend, whoever. Yeah, my mentor, uh, Dan Friedlander, he's no longer with us, but he was a sales leader. He uh, was, I think, the first seller for uh, a company called Novell out of uh, the first, one of the first big software networking companies uh, that did file servers back in the day, uh, sales leader for them and Ray Norda and those guys, a serial entrepreneur. So he taught me everything I know about entrepreneurship, but he also lived many different lives. He was an artist uh, and was a, a sculptor. Uh, he was a climate activist and uh, just a great all-around uh, guy. So he's missed. And uh, so shout out to Dan and all of his guidance and, and wisdom. And also kind of creating this multi-dimensional life, which I have also sought to do, not just be a one-trick pony kind of thing. Portfolio career, as they call yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. We'll now go into our final lessons or takeaways for the audience based on the discussion today. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you. Uh, The topic today was quantifying value when value is hard to quantify. We talked about a lot today. It was all really good. And if I could just pull one thing, well, it's not that this is the thing, but I think it is an important thing. And we didn't even talk a ton about it, but you cannot, you said, don't assume that they, meaning the customer, the buyer, don't assume they've diagnosed their own problem completely, which is what I think a lot of people fall into that. Oh, they came in, they, they told us what was their issue. I'm just going to show them exactly what matches their issue. Don't assume they've diagnosed their own problem completely because maybe, they maybe don't know everything. They maybe are overlooking something and perhaps you have more to give them than what, you know, just that small box that they've put you in. Tom, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the audience. Yeah, I think value is not one dimensional. 
So think about value using those three dimensions of business value, which is that kind of thing that we typically think about the quantified, the ROI, but also remember to include functional organizational value. And then also make sure you're connecting and perhaps even documenting personal value that your champion and mobilizer can achieve. So those three dimensions I think are important. Three value perspectives, business, functional, and personal. My final question, which is how we end every episode here on the show, fill in the blank, Tom. Entrepreneurship is blank. Entrepreneurship is getting the most uncomfortable you've ever been in your whole life in order to grow in ways you never thought possible. I like that. Getting, say it one more time. Yep, getting the most uncomfortable you've ever been in your whole life in order to grow in ways you never thought possible. Well, cheers to getting uncomfortable, Tom. This was a fantastic discussion. Thank you for joining today. Thank you for being a guest on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.